In terms of versatility in the kitchen, it's hard to beat the duck. It's easy to use everything but the quack. They're small enough for one person to deal with, and in terms of the number of meals you can generate out of one, not very expensive. We're spending the hour today turning one duck into lots of tasty bits. From KBBI in Homer, Alaska, my name's Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. was one of the first animals to be domesticated, with evidence dating back as far as 4000 BC in Southeast Asia. Geese were definitely domesticated in Egypt around the same time. There's evidence that the Egyptians also captured wild ducks to raise in captivity, but it's unclear whether they also bred those ducks. In the Americas, the Muscovy duck, a different species native to the Amazon, was domesticated in Peru and Colombia, and from there spread around at least far enough to travel back to Europe on one of Christopher Columbus's return trips. These are still the two species that all domestic ducks derive from. Most meat ducks in the U.S. today are Pekin, a white-feathered, sizable duck that was developed by the greatest duck-loving culture in the world, China where the parent breed's name translates into 10-pound duck. A Connecticut farmer brought a few over in the 1870s, and their large size, fast growth, and prolific egg-laying quickly brought them to dominate American duck production. There were at one time so many duck farms on Long Island in New York that the Pekin acquired its second name, the Long Island Duck. In one of the strange turns food often takes in its travels across time and cultures, the native domestic duck breed from the American continents, the Muscovy, is far less popular on its home side of the Atlantic than it is in Europe. The Muscovy, also known as the Barbary duck, is larger than its mallard-based counterpart, with more lean meat, a stronger flavor, and less fat. It's an adaptable bird and one that easily reverts to a feral state. It's considered an invasive species everywhere in the United States, but extreme southern Texas by the Fish and Wildlife Service. Possession of a muscovy for any purpose other than food production is illegal, and eradication of the birds outside of confinement is encouraged. The two duck species have been united as well. Male muscovies and female mallards are joined to create the moulard or mule duck. It is sterile, hence the name, and combines the larger size of the muscovy with the speedy growth of the mallard. This is the preferred breed for making foie gras, the fatty and large liver that is one of the great luxury foods of the world and which has been made since ancient Egypt. Egyptians noted that geese, in preparation for migration, would gorge themselves on whatever food was available and quickly learned that if you killed them just before they left, their livers would be bloated with stored fat and extremely delicious. It was a very short step from there to force-feeding them by dumping grain through hollow reeds directly into their stomachs, and foie gras, literally fat liver, was born. The modern foie gras industry, where it still exists, has switched almost entirely to moulard ducks, which are much less expensive to raise than geese, and whose meat is more popular in all but a few areas. The migratory nature and wide range of ducks probably explains why they were domesticated in several different places and were common around the world long before the chicken made its journey out of the Indian jungles. Wild mallards today are still attracted to even small ponds and are quite happy to hang around a congenial environment. It is no trouble at all to imagine people 6,000 years ago encouraging a few to stick around for a while by tossing them scraps of food and then, towards the end of the summer, when they'd gotten fat and complacent, catching them for dinner. Until the 20th century, chickens lag way behind. In the U.S., chicken was considered a luxury meat, at least outside of a farm setting, as late as the 1930s. When Louisiana Governor Huey Long began his rise to national prominence, he did it with a promise of a chicken in every pot, which was considered then to be a completely ridiculous notion, and which now is nearly believed to be a right. Today, of course, things are different. 26 million ducks are slaughtered every year in the U.S. Per capita duck consumption is around a third of a pound. 
Contrast that with the 9 billion chickens that are annually dispatched to feed us. And then consider the wide variety of useful products you can get out of a duck and its distinct flavor versus the blandness of the industrial chicken. And I hope you will be persuaded that of all the readily available supermarket meats, duck is the one most deserving of your attention. currently in one of my favorite situations. I have a whole dressed duck on my cutting board. Duck happens to be pretty much my favorite meat. One is that I just think it's delicious. The other reason is that you can do so much with it. It's basically like the pork of the poultry world. So today we're gonna break down a duck. There's a few different ways of doing it, but this is kind of typically how I usually do it. I don't eat a lot of roast duck, although, you know, occasionally that's what you want. And roast duck, if you're gonna go through the trouble of making roast duck, I think it's worth going through the real trouble of making picking duck because the best way to get the amazing skin. And the, the Chinese are great lovers of duck and there's a lot of really awesome Chinese duck recipes out there. So I highly recommend uh, looking into those. But today, we are going to be a little more European in our duck treatment. Specifically, the way that I actually got into all the whole charcuterie, making sausage, all of that stuff really started the year that I had some ducks. Because I didn't really know what I was going to do with them at the end. Which is something that can sometimes take you by surprise at the end of, uh, you know, raising animals. Where you go, wait a minute, now I've got, I've got a huge amount of meat and now I have to figure out what to do with it. And so... Before that happened, I started looking into it, and there is a lot of really amazing duck cookery from the southwestern part of France, and I, I got into it sort of that way. Specifically, my guidebook was a, a classic cookbook called The Cooking of Southwest France by Paula Wolford. It's an amazing book, and I really learned a lot from it. And in the way to sort of do something with duck that wasn't just roast duck, and that was also, you know, as, as good a job as you can do cooking it because they're really versatile. So what I'm doing right now is I'm trimming the fat. They're real fatty and people complain, oh, ducks are, oh, they're greasy, they're greasy. No, they're not greasy, they are fatty. But this fat is almost the reason to, to get duck because uh, the duck fat is amazing. It is really spectacularly delicious. One duck will get you quite a bit of duck fat and we'll talk about what exactly we can do with the duck fat later. For now, I'm gonna talk about how to render it. Let me describe to you the scene here. I've got a saucepan, a quarter sheet pan, and then I've got two little, well, these are nine pans, so these are restaurant pans, but they could be bowls or whatever. So I'm trimming off the little chunks of fat, and I'm trimming those down into like roughly one inch pieces. Those are going into the little saucepan. What, we'll get to what happens with all this later. I'm just describing what I'm doing as I'm uh, cutting this duck up. So I just cut off the wings, and the wings went onto the half sheet pan along with the neck, Unfortunately, this duck, I'm a little annoyed. I gotta say this because this particular duck did not have any giblets other than the neck. So I got a neck, which is great. I mean, it'll be very useful down the road, but I didn't get hearts, I didn't get gizzards, and I didn't get a liver. And man, the liver's really bumming me out because I was gonna talk about making duck liver pate, but guess what? We're not gonna talk about that today. And I'm a little annoyed about it, but whatever, that's how it goes. The other two containers, one's gonna get the breasts and one's gonna get the legs, which I'm about to deal with right now. So that's a leg and that's a leg. Now I've just got the breasts. Now trimming off the breast right down to the rib cage in there. I've still got more trimming to do on uh, the breasts and the legs both. And now I have a little chunk of uh, the carcass and I'm going to cut the skin off of the back because the skin is, again, going to get rendered. The nice thing about if you render your own duck fat is, uh, is you get cracklings afterwards. Okay, so I'm gonna throw my, so the carcass is going on the sheet pan along with the wings and along with the neck. I've got the oven going at 400 and I'm going to roast the carcass for just a few minutes just to get some brown on it. And then I'm gonna make stock out of the carcass. And after that, I'm gonna make, with the little chunks of meat that are left on the carcass, after the stock cooks for a little while, I'm gonna pull, pull it out, 
take all the meat off and make rillettes out of those. Now I have to finish trimming up my legs. There's always a bunch of skin hanging off the legs that you want to cut off and throw in your fat pot. And I actually, I kind of have to think about this a little bit because I could make confit out of this and I'll have some more to say about this later, but I'm not going to because to really make it the real way involves a lot of legs and a lot of fat. There are some kind of approximations of it and they're good. You know, they use sous vide typically is how they do it. And they're good. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a good result. It's not as good as the real thing. The texture is a little bit different. It's a little wetter. Real confit is, has a little bit drier texture, a bit more like ham. So I'm probably not gonna make confit out of this, which means I could pull off the leg skin. What I'm probably gonna do with this, in fact, what I know I'm gonna do with this is I'm gonna I'm gonna make a, a lentil stew with the uh, with these legs. So the question is, do I wanna keep the skin on for the lentil stew? And I am thinking, no. Duck skin, it, it needs to be crispy or else it's not very good. So what I'm gonna do is peel it off. And duck skin's a little, it, it doesn't peel quite as easily as chicken skin, so you gotta kind of find a way in. And, uh, and work it, and sometimes you gotta trim it a little bit. So I'm gonna take most of the duck, most of the leg skin off. Don't worry, it's not getting wasted. It's just gonna go right into the pot with the rest of the skin. Don't worry, one day we will do a show on confit. I'm gonna wait till I have a bunch of preferably local ducks. Because confit is really, it really is an amazing thing. And it's fairly easy to do, it's just, it's one of those things you want to do it right. Duck breasts always look kind of ratty when you pull them off the duck. So, cause there's, there's overhangs and sort of some random chunks of meat. There's the tenderloins, which have to come off. And the tenderloins are, yes, they are exactly like chicken tenders. And you can pull those right off. There's usually some little chunks of bone attached and some weird looking tendons, some silver skin kind of stuff. That can go in with the, uh, on the roasting tray to be made into stock. And then I just trim, you, you wanna leave a little bit of an overhang of fat. If you cut the fat even with the meat, you'll wind up with a lot of shrinkage. The skin will shrink quite a bit. So I just remove all of the little bits of bone and all of the little bits of silver skin. Flip it over, see how it looks. The tenderloins themselves will become one of the great cook's treats. You know, just a little chunk. No point in sending that out to anybody. Just eat it myself. And now I've got two lovely duck breasts. So first I'm going to start roasting. I'm gonna roast the, uh, the bones for just until they're brown. And then I'm gonna exactly like making chicken stock, put them in a pot of water, just cover them with water, bring the water up to a simmer, skim it a little bit, let it go for a couple hours. Now, to render the fat, if you render the fat in a dry pan, there's a very good chance, well, you're basically gonna wind up sauteing it because the temperature will get hot and the fat will get much darker. What you're looking for when you render fat is a very neutral flavor. You don't wanna have like browned flavors like bacon fat. We're trying just to pull the fat out. And now later on, when you go to make the cracklings, then you actually do wanna brown them. But for now, we're just trying, we're gonna be simmering them for, it usually takes about an hour sometimes an hour and a half, depending on how, how thick you cut your fat. If you cut your fat really, really small, it renders a lot faster. So I'm just putting in water just to cover. Stir it around a little bit just to make sure that the, the water is all in the bottom. And you, you don't use very much water. You just use enough water so that by the time most of the fat has really started to render, it's sort of covering the bottom itself. So the bits of skin don't dry out and brown on the bottom. So I've just, you know, that was maybe like a, half a cup, maybe a little more of water. And I'm just gonna turn it on and let it go. It's gonna, I'm gonna keep that at a bare, bare simmer till it's rendered basically. Now with the legs, I'm just gonna salt them a little bit. In general, I like to salt my meat fairly early um, and let it salt for however long. It almost can't really salt for too long. And I'm salting the breast just on the meat side. There's no, no real point in salting on the, 
on the fat side of these. Salt doesn't really penetrate fat in the same way that it does uh, lean meat. And so the legs and the, the breasts can go in the fridge. And let me express again how annoyed I am <laughs> that there are no hearts, gizzards, and livers in here. I'm really sad about it, but we'll just have to make duck liver pate or poultry liver pate at some point in the future. Because I love the stuff, and it's so easy to make. And even people who hate liver love it. Because it's got so much butter in it. You can't go wrong with butter. So right now, my kitchen is really starting to smell delicious, and I haven't even begun. I have the duck cracklings that I rendered. After, I render, after you render the duck fat, you wind up with these sort of uh, slightly browned, very, very sticky very gelatinous uh, bits of skin. And then what you gotta do from that point is crisp them up somehow. Uh, the easiest way to do it is, if you have a deep fryer, is to just throw them in the fryer for you know half 30 seconds or whatever, pull them out and you get cracklings. And they're amazing. They're known as, in, in England, they call them scratchings. You do the same thing with pork fat. You know, After you render pork fat, you get the little bits left over. Well, that's what cracklings are. They're the, they're the stuff that isn't fat. I mean, there's still fat in there, obviously, because you can't render it 100%. So, you know, here we call them cracklins. Um, in Britain, they call them scratchins. In France, they're gratons. Um, there's the, everybody has them because everybody loves them. They're like the great treat from rending fat, besides the fat itself. And I'm gonna check mine because I think they're actually pretty close to being done. Not only are they pretty close to being done, they are done. And there's a little, you always get a little more extra fat and I will uh, use that too because that's the whole thing with this, with this, this particular episode and why I'm dealing with a whole duck is this is about using everything. And it's easy to demonstrate on a duck because it's pretty, it's small, you know? And one thing I really want to emphasize is, you know, you go, you look at the ducks in the, in the, in the freezer, which is the only way we can get them here, um, usually. Occasionally you can get them another way. You look at the ducks and you're like, man, that's 20 bucks. That's a lot. And then, you know, you look at a roasted duck and you're like, that's not really that much meat for 20 bucks. You know, it's pretty expensive. But if you shift your perspective a little bit and you go, it's not just, you know, one meal of roast duck that I'm looking for. What I'm going to do is I'm going to get all this useful stuff out of this one duck. That is economy. I'm looking at all the products right now. I've got a good solid cup and a half of fat off of that, okay? That I can use for all sorts of stuff. I mean, any situation in which you'd use oil, you can use this stuff, and in most cases, it'll taste better. I've got a good solid quart, quart and a half of duck stock. That I can make soups out of, I can use it to add flavor to all sorts of things. Just a cup of fat, a cup of really high quality fat, you know, a high quality, really nice olive oil in the store, something that's really good, that tastes good, that adds a lot to the food. Let's call it $1.50 in the store for a cup and a half of really top-notch oil or fat, you know, and, it, and it's actually, it, it'll be around that. And then I got a good quart, a little over a quart of uh, duck stock that's better than anything I can get in the store. And that stuff in the store, that's 350. So even just considering the absolute byproducts of this, like I haven't even started eating the actual meat yet. I'm already at like five bucks and stuff that, uh, that I've produced out of this. Now I've just created a delicious snack with these uh, cracklins. I am going to drop these into a ramekin. They are still super hot. You want to eat them when they're nice and warm, but not when they're crazy hot. And I'm going to toss those, just a little bit of salt. Oh yeah. In this case, a little pepper. And they go, they go really well with a lot of seasonings. Um, they're really good with five spice. Put a little cayenne pepper on these too. Okay, so now I have a little snack that everybody will love and that is unbelievably delicious. Oh man, well, there's nothing better than that. I'll eat one more of these before I start cutting this onion. So that's so now I've got now I've got the duck fat, now I've got the stock, and now I've had this really delicious snack. So let's say we we're up to like six dollars in value. So the next thing I'm gonna do is I'm going to use this fat, partly this fat, it's not gonna be, it's not enough. You know, I rendered most of the fat out of the uh, skins, so there's not that much left. So I have to add, I gotta supplement this with a little duck fat, maybe a half a tablespoon or something. Because the next thing that I'm gonna do is I'm gonna make a stew or a soup. You can call it whatever you want, I really don't care. 
And it's going to be duck and lentils because they are just an amazing classic pairing. And I've also got some lovely carrots left over from my garden. And we'll talk about these in a minute too. These are, these are a new kind of carrot that I grew this year for the first time and I love them. So I'm heating up a saucepan and I'm chopping an onion. There's a little duck fat in the saucepan. This is going to be the base of my lentil stew. And this is going to be, I'm not going to eat that this today. I'm saving this. I'm actually making myself lunch for the rest of the week so that I can feed myself at the radio station while I'm making these shows for you guys. And I'm just going to sweat these onions a little bit. So just a little salt. Every time I go over to reach a, and grab a utensil, the crackling bowl is conveniently there. So while those onions are cooking, I'm going to cut a few of these carrots into dice. And these carrots, these are, these are a variety that I started, I'd never grown them before, and I grew them this year because they said, uh, you know, in the seed catalog, they're like, oh, these are great for places with heavy soil, which, yes, I have very heavy soil. <laughs> and I've never really had a lot of success growing carrots. I mean, I've been able to grow them and they're, they're delicious, but they're always kind of small and a little spindly looking. I know some people around here are able to, to grow magnificent, long, deep, deep-rooted carrots, but I am not one of those people. So, you know, you get faced with two choices. One is that you can spend enormous amounts of time, you know, trying to improve the soil to the point and to the degree that you'll get, you can get the long, beautiful rooted carrots, or you can just go, you know what, my soil's pretty heavy, which is bad for carrots, but which is okay for other things. And so I'm just gonna roll with it. So I got a variety, the whole sort of style of carrot, they're called Parisian carrots. And there's different varieties in them, but I think the actual variety that I got is also Parisian. Um, it's a style of carrot, and what they are is they're very small. In fact, the largest one, which I have just cut up, the largest one in this little bundle of carrots was about the size of a golf ball. So they're great if your soil is really heavy, if your organic material isn't super deep, they're super awesome for that. And uh, that happens to be my conditions. And I've used them for a lot of different things. They pickle really nicely. I got a bunch of them. I fermented a bunch of them. They're, they're really delicious and I'm, I, I love them. I'm, you can grow them a lot denser than, uh, than you can grow uh, the regular size kind of carrots because they're so small. So I've got the ones that I'm gonna use for sweating, which I'm adding right now, because my onions are getting a little translucent. And then the smaller ones that are all about the same size, I'm just gonna add those directly and they're gonna stew in here with the, uh, with the lentils and with the duck legs because the duck legs are going into here. So let's talk about lentils. We don't really appreciate them enough. Um, they're nice because unlike all the other kinds of beans, you don't have to soak lentils. So if you're sitting around and you, you, know, you come home from work or whatever and you're like, oh no, I, want a, I need to make some kind of delicious and filling and yummy side, or main because really beans beans are fantastic as a main component of a meal. The nice thing about lentils is you can do them, if you don't have a pressure cooker, you can just cook them and then 45 minutes to an hour later, they're done. Um, unlike all the other kind of beans. Mm. Oh, these crack ones are so good. A lot of butcher shops in South Louisiana will have a, a little red light on the outside and they turn it on whenever they either have fresh hot boudin that they just finished cooking or hot crackling. I'm adding some garlic, just a little. This is gonna be a really simple lentil dish, you know, like, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing complex about this, but I'm gonna use a bunch of lentils, and then at the end of it, I'll have, I'm, I'm gonna say, I'll have a good solid four really generous, really delicious lentil and duck stews made out of it. So let's just say that you're buying the, the cheapest of the cheap sort of single serve meal that you can put in a Tupperware and stick in the microwave, you know, or heat up on the stove real fast. I mean, the cheapest, the absolute cheapest ones that I've ever seen of those are like four for 10 bucks. I mean, for the decent ones that aren't just complete, you know, whatever, you know, and that's not ramen noodles. But this will be better than those. So I feel like it's okay if we if we go instead of four for 10 bucks, we go maybe four for 15 bucks. So, you know, 375 or whatever per, per serving, which is still hilariously low. But now we're already at 20 bucks and I haven't even done anything with the breasts yet. So we're already dead even and I haven't made my riettes, which is also coming down the pipeline. And if this was a, let me just, express again how irritated that I am that there, the only giblets in this thing were uh, was the neck and there were no hearts, no no gizzards and no livers, especially the liver, man. I'm super annoyed about the liver because we would have got some duck liver pate out of this too. The other nice thing about this particular lentil stew is it's a really good flavor base for a lot of different things, you know, like it'd be really easy 
to alter the, the flavors so it would be like kind of a curried lentil stew. I mean, cur lentils are huge in, in India, um, and lentils are cheap. And as I'm hoping to persuade you, duck is for the, if you put in the work, it's relatively inexpensive in terms of the amount of stuff that you can get. Got a tube of tomato paste that looks like it's down to its last squirt. And I'm gonna shoot that in there. A little tomato paste is always nice at the bottom of bean stews. So with tomato paste, always remember you don't need very much of it and always saute it for a little bit until, the, until it kind of darkens up a little, it'll turn sort of bricky. All right, now I got my breath or my legs and I've stripped most of the skin off. There's still a little bit left on there, but not very much. And uh, these, I'm not really gonna saute them. I'm just gonna kind of put them on the bottom of the, uh, of the pile here. And I'm getting my lentils out. I don't think there's anything that really needs to go into this now. I'm going to add a little bit of rosemary. I think that'll be nice. That's kind of a flavor that I'm happy to have in this stew. And I'm putting a fair amount of lentils in here. Probably half a one pound bag, maybe a little more. I put the whole thing in, but I don't think my saucepan will take it. So I got my duck stock, which I didn't really reduce very much uh, when I made it. So it's there's a, there's a very, very light gel but it's not like, it's not jellied hard because it's not reduced far enough down to, to make it gel up. But you can, with this stock, this stock, uh, a nicely made duck stock like this, is it'll, you can, you can take it really far down. You can, in fact, take it far enough down to, to make a, a duck demi, no problem. Which just makes your, your ratio of money to uh, product that much better. I'm gonna drop a little cayenne in there because I like cayenne and a little paprika because I like paprika and a little bit of rosemary. And I'm just gonna get this up to a simmer and keep it on very low. I am going to cover it at least for the first half hour or so. I almost forgot, I gotta add the rest of my carrots. And these, I just wanna simmer these in here. I don't really wanna saute them. I'm just looking for some nice chunky deeply flavorful carrots. And because these are the small ones, I mean, these are like maybe a little bit bigger than marbles. I don't have to cut them or anything. I just I trim the little, the long root part off and, and cut out the green stem bit and that's it. Yeah, I'm almost out of my cracklings. You think potato chips are hard to stop eating? Such a fantastic little snack, you know, no trouble at all to make. It's just a byproduct. <laughs> that is heating up, I can start working on my riettes. The best way to make riettes is uh, either to roast the carcasses for a really long time with a bunch of aromatics and you get lots of juicy drippings and all kind of good stuff. That's the best way to make them. No sense in beating around the bush. Since we're in the process of making things that are byproducts, I'm gonna make these with the duck that's left over from cooking my stock. So it's not gonna be as super flavorful, it's not gonna be as intense, so I'm gonna have to be a little heavier handed with the seasonings. And what riettes are is, if you've ever seen like the potted meat at the grocery store? That's basically what they are. Uh, you can make them with pork, you can make them with anything. I make them with salmon pretty frequently, although the, the method for doing that is slightly different. You cut and shred and pound the meat very fine. It's kind of up to you, you know, you can leave it pretty chunky, you can pulverize it to a paste, there are a lot of different ways of doing it. I personally like mine a little chunkier. And then you mix it with fat, typically the fat of the animal. Although in salmon's case, you use butter, or I use butter. And it makes a paste, it makes a spread, and you spread it on bread, and it's an appetizer, and it's delicious. So I've got, my, I got a little ramekin out, ready to accept my riettes, and I've got them, I've got the, I've stripped all the meat off of the bones from the stock and I'm just pounding it a little into shreds in my mortar and pestle. And this is just to get it to a fine texture. You know, I'm tasting it and it's pretty, it's pretty bland, you know. I'm gonna add a little salt and a little of something that I just learned about this year when I was trying to figure out what to do with parsley. Something called herb salé. What it is, it's from Acadia in Canada, the, the ancestral homeland of the Cajun people, the Acadian people. And they have a tradition of, it's called herb salé. It is typically a lot of different kinds of herbs, including 
carrots, onions, parsley, a bunch of different stuff. You layer it, you chop it real fine and layer it in a jar with salt. And then gradually the salt sort of preserves it. And I had a ton of parsley this year and I was like, I don't know what I'm gonna do with all this parsley. This is one of the things that I discovered and it's quite delicious, it turns out. It's really useful on a lot of different things. It's a great seasoning to have just handy because it's, it's a complex flavor, you know, there's all kind of different things in it. So it's quite good. And I'm going to use this in these riettes because I feel like this will be a very delicious flavor. And I'm about to find out. Shockingly, it's a very delicious flavor. Mmm, well, that's good. That's really good. I'm going to add a little pepper. There, again, the traditional seasonings for riettes are basically quatre uh, piece or fina piece, which is uh, a combination of spices, usually involving cinnamon, cloves, nutmeg, uh, white pepper, a few other things. If you were in France, that would be what you would most likely be seasoning your riettes with. But in this case, I'm just gonna leave it, I'm gonna leave this fairly light, fairly herby. So then the next thing to do with it is to mix it with the fat. And you're, and you're mixing it with just enough fat to sort of make the whole thing combine into a paste, is all we're really trying to do. That's about four tablespoons, that might be good enough. And the finer you, the finer you make the, your, your meat, the more uh, fat you'll wind up using. So if you want it to just be kind of a very meaty, um, less fatty paste, then keep your, keep your chunks relatively large. Whereas if you want it to be fattier and more like meat butter, where you're, you're using like almost an equal quantity of each, make it, make your chunks fairly small. Mm. Oh yeah, oh, that's perfect. Probably bring this to Thanksgiving, honestly. And I'm just packing it into a ramekin. You know, you want to you want to get all the all the air out. This is kind of a quick and dirty version too. Um, this is one of the things that was traditionally a storage thing. So you would generally be a little more careful in the manufacture, really making sure you get all the air out here. Frequently using a little sodium nitrite to give it more keeping quality, because these would be stored in jars alongside the the duck confit in the cellar. But if you're only keep, if you're keeping it in the in the fridge and you're not going to eat it for, you know, in less than a week or something, it's okay to do this quick and dirty version. And then I just give it a little sprinkling of the fat just on top, just enough to cover it. And again, if you're if, if you're doing this specifically for keeping for a long time, this is a very important step. If you if you were if you were doing this traditionally, you would have a thick a considerably thicker layer of fat. For this, we'll just keep it very small, just so you get a nice uh, taste of the duck fat, you know, pure. Okay, so that is duck riettes, and I have a little a little lid for my little ramekin. Very nice. It's actually a custard pot. And uh, so there, now we got duck riettes. So let's say you can't get those for very cheap. That amount, anywhere you go. I'm just even. I'm just guessing based on sort of memory from what I've seen. I'm gonna say that's gonna be ten dollars if you bought that. You know, considering the quality, considering that it's duck. I'm gonna say that's 10 bucks. So that's, now we're up to 30 bucks for our duck. And I've still got enough fat. I don't need to use any more of this fat. And I've still got probably, oh, after I use that, I guess around, that's probably a third of a cup. And this, I just wanna say this about duck fat. It's fantastic for potatoes. Um, I'm generally not a huge fan of potatoes, but I love potatoes that are cooked in duck fat. They're magnificent. Cook them just like home fries, you know, cube them up. Uh, boil them until they're tender and soft and then throw them in a pan with a little duck fat and they're really something special or put it on the outside of them when you roast them animal fats impart a savoriness uh, that you can't really get from vegetable fats as anyone who, who likes using bacon fat knows the problem with bacon fat is it always gives a smoky flavor which you don't always want and let me just say again boy right now right about now is the point at which i would make uh some really lovely duck liver pate, which would really make this all worth it. It would be so delicious and uh, and bump the value added to this duck carcass just sky high because everybody, even people that hate liver, love a good duck liver pate. But this duck did not come with liver. Now this is the meal part because I got my duck breast and duck breast is, I'd rather have duck breast than steak. The only thing about it is like, is it feels like every time you go anywhere, at least in the States, duck will be on the menu or a special or whatever. And you're like, yes. And I get super excited. And then it's almost inevitably 
duck breast with cherry sauce or duck breast with port sauce or duck breast with orange sauce. And it's always, 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 always it feels like to me sometimes. It always feels like it's something that's sweet and fruity. And it's not that that's bad with duck because it, it, it is. I mean, the reason that, they, that people make duck with cherries is because it's classic and it's delicious. Yes, it absolutely is. As long as it's made well. Sometimes you get it and it's like somebody's poured cough syrup on it. And it's like, no, why did you do this? You know, bad. You're bad. I hate you. You make me angry. But even when it's well made, it's one thing. And I like the savoriness of duck. I like the fact that it has kind of a gamey flavor. I like that there's an intensity to it that you just don't get with, uh, with anything else, really. Except for maybe, you know, the various venisons. That's how she goes. The other nice thing about duck breast is how absurdly easy it is to cook. It's not like steak, where everybody has their own way of cooking steak, and their way is the best way that you could ever possibly imagine. Any other way of cooking steak, people argue about it, and it's just like this ridiculous thing, and it just introduces so much anger into the world. Steak cookery. Duck cookery is not like that. There's pretty much only one way to cook a duck breast, assuming that you're cooking it in a, you know, in the the Western fashion on its own and not as part of a roast or whatever. And this method will work no matter if you are at home with a mediocre oven or if you are in the fanciest commercial kitchen in the world with stoves that are capable of generating vast quantities of heat. It doesn't matter because you cook this basically on medium, medium high heat. And you, you start off in a cold pan. This, does, this doesn't rely on, you know, screaming hot pans and generating tons of smoke and like, flames and you know people sweating and being all aggro and this is a very simple easy one might almost say civilized way to cook a singular piece of protein it doesn't require any fancy preparation the exact the amount of preparation that it actually involves is uh removing the duck breast from the duck and scoring the skin it helps to have a sharp knife you don't want to push real hard because you don't want to dig inside you don't want to cut into the meat if you can help it i like to score mine fairly close together then the little bits crisp up. And the reason that we start in a cold pan, so we're slowly rendering most of the fat out of the, the skin. At the same time, the, the skin is insulating the meat underneath, so it's not going to overcook. We generally, generally duck breast doesn't get cooked past medium. If this style of duck breast is really done right, if you want well done duck breast, roast duck is better. Because it's gonna give you more skin. And roast duck is about the skin in a way that this is not about the skin. This is about the breast. Now you may be wondering why I have some water boiling. You might be able to hear it in the background. And the reason for that, this next dish will be ready to cook. And while the duck breast is resting, I can cook this. And by this, I mean hot water cornbread, which is something that my grandmother made all the time. And which is also something that you don't hear much about. Even in, you know, even in the, the super hoity-toity fancy super expensive southern restaurants that are opening up now like hardly anybody really seems to make hot water cornbread and i'm not really sure why i feel i think it's pretty regional i know louisiana if you it feels like the center for where it's made but not south louisiana it's, it's more of a north louisiana thing black and white poor north louisiana seems to be the center the center for hot water cornbread in america it's very similar to what's called Johnny Cake, although I think Johnny Cake is usually baked as a big thing in one pan. Hot water cornbread, all it is, is three ingredients. Cornmeal, water, salt. That is it. If there's any other ingredients in there, other than if you were like, I, I have made it with like herbs, and it's really good with herbs. If there's like baking powder and stuff like that, no, 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 no milk. That's, that's how you get hush puppies. And what this is, this is like the simplest version of hush puppies that you could possibly imagine. It's pretty dense. It's, it's fried cornmeal mush is what it is. It's not like polenta though, because it's not made the same way that the polenta is. You know, I've, I've made, a lot of places will, you know, expensive places will give you fried polenta. They make that different. They make the polenta first, they let it cool. After it's cooled, then they fry it. But it's got a totally different texture. It's not the same thing at all. This, it's very dense. Depending on how much water you add, which I'm pouring in the water right now, it kind of determines the texture. So I'm pouring in hot water right now, and 
and you're looking for just enough hot water so that the whole thing will hold together. You fry it in patties. That's really all there is to it. I mean, this is the kind of dish that people have been eating for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, you know? Hot water, ground up grain, made into a cake and fried. I mean, that's like, that's like this is like the basis for all cuisine. Oh, one thing that is somewhat acceptable is oh, it, some recipes call for lard and lard is, lard is acceptable in here, but usually it's, it tends to not be made with lard. It's actually very, very similar to the tortilla, the corn tortilla. I mean, well, not in appearance, but in, in sort of theoretical manufacture to the tor tortilla, you know, it's just water and cornmeal, except one of the things that uh, when white people came over to America, they got the corn from the natives, but they didn't really pick up on nixtamalization, which is the, the process of treating corn with lye that makes it possible to make a dough out of, as opposed to the sort of crumbly dough that you get with just straight corn. You know, you can't, like, that's why you can press a tortilla and have it hold its shape. Whereas I'm trying to press this stuff right now and it just completely falls apart. You can't shape it, you can't do anything with it. And it's always gonna have a different texture. It's never gonna make a smooth dough. They picked up on it enough to make hominy, which is, you know, nixtamalized corn. It never made the next step into grinding it. Hominy was kind of like always a specialty food and it never got ground. And somebody is gonna be listening, they're gonna go, what about hominy grits? But hominy grits are actually made from the corn that they used to make hominy, but they're not actually made from the hominy, which is why grits have the separate grain texture that is characteristic of corn that is straight off the cob, that is not nixtamalized like masa harina. If grits were actually made out of hominy, then they would cook up like tamales, and they don't. So there you go, that's all the proof that you need. And there actually, there are stories of, you know, in, in, uh, in North America when the first English colonists landed, and they saw the Indians, you know, were cooking corn, and they're like, oh, they're cooking corn, that's great. But they're putting wood ash in it, that's disgusting. We're not gonna do that, that we're not gonna bother with that, we don't need to do that. And of course, the wood ash is the thing that contains the alkaline solution, the potash, that carries out the nixtamalization and does all, has all these other benefits. So they saw them boiling it and they just totally blew off the wood ash as an unnecessarily savage thing, which is why we don't eat much hominy these days. But so now I've set aside my, my hot water cornbread batter dough, which now it's, it's just enough. It'll hold together in its cake for me to fry it. Just gotta let that hydrate a little bit. Because it needs to, it needs to set aside. It needs to fully hydrate. Because there's always there's two part, parts to cooking starches. There's hydration, where it sucks up the water, and then there's the actual cooking. And if you can hydrate before you actually cook, then the cooking takes a lot less time. We'll have much more to say about that at some point in the future. Oh yeah. Just checking on my lentil stew, and it is looking very delicious. So now I have my duck breast, laying it down in a cold pan and turning it on to medium heat. So for the next roughly 10 minutes, sometimes eight if it's a very small breast, sometimes 12 if it's a very large one, I'm not gonna do very much to this, uh, this duck breast. All I'm gonna do is as the fat renders off of the skin, I'm gonna spoon it out into a little separate cup and I'll use that very shortly to make the uh, the third component of this particular dish that I'm coming up with on the fly basically because this this skin is going to throw off a fairly considerable amount of fat but the basic procedure is roughly 10 minutes on one side on the skin side and then flip it and at the same sort of medium fairly gentle heat cook it for another few minutes on the the meat side until it's until you're done you can also finish it in the oven and I can already see there's already a considerable amount of fat starting to come off. And as it as it as it comes off, it's nice to if you kind of tilt the skillet a little bit and let the fat drain away from the meat, because we don't want the meat to just sit there and stew in its own fat. Right now, the fat we're not near at frying temperatures; we're at rendering temperatures. So if you if you don't keep continuously drain the fat, then your fat will never crisp up. Your skin will never crisp up properly. And starting with a cold skillet, your duck will always stick for the first few minutes. So do not freak out if you try to move it and you're like, oh no, it's stuck forever. No, it, it just takes a little while to heat, heat up until all the skin will re release from the pan. Um, you just gotta wait. Uh, I'm already throwing off some nice fat. Still spooning off, it's starting to render quite a bit of fat now. I turned it down just a little bit. You know, you don't wanna see smoke. 
If you do see smoke, just turn it down. And now at this point, now that it's been in here for a few minutes and it's starting to re generously re release its fat, what I will do is I'm, I'm putting my spoon just kind of under the breast a little bit and just gently lifting it, you know, and that helps, that helps it release from the pan. It'll still, don't worry you guys, it, it will release from the pan. It's nice to, uh, to help it out a little bit. So I've got almost a tablespoon that's rendered off so far. Yeah, we're in hardcore rendering mode now. Now again, this is, this is dry rendering fat, which is different than wet rendering, which is what we did with most of the, the stuff earlier. The composition of the fat is different, the flavor is different, and the number of uses that you can, you can put it to are different. Like this stuff, this fat will be amazing for roasting the potatoes as well. The wet rendered fat is better for things like frying, like deep frying or even shallow pan frying as opposed to like sauteing because they're gonna, it's gonna contribute less of like that browned intense flavor of its own and it actually holds up better under the higher temperatures of frying frying. It's also really good in pastry. If you were gonna make like a duck pie or something or any kind of a savory pie, duck fat is extremely good for that. Starting to release a little more. Pretty much by the time that the whole thing releases, it's ready to turn. And it's definitely, the, the amount of fat that it's throwing has really slowed down quite a bit. So that's probably a good, probably two tablespoons of uh, duck fat that this threw. The whole thing releases and you flip it over and it's beautiful. You got this nice crispy crackling duck skin. There's always a fat side on the breast, and that's the side that you keep kind of angled in towards the heat. And that's the side where you kind of test the doneness. Right now it's still just a pinch rare. And I'm at 122. Pulling it right now for a little piece of meat like this is going to make it beautifully, basically medium by the time it rests. So it's gonna rest for 10 minutes or so. I'm gonna fry my hot water cornbread. I'm just gonna pour a little bit of canola, cover the bottom of the pan. This, these get pan fried. I'm gonna add a little bit, just a spoonful or two of the duck fat and they will, even a little bit of duck fat mixed in with, uh, with canola, it will improve the flavor. It's not, if I had more, if I had done more ducks, I would have more duck fat. I might be able to fry it all in duck fat, but this is what I got now. And you can basically shape these in balls or cakes. I typically do cakes. I think I'm gonna serve, I'm gonna put the duck breast on top of it. So I'm gonna make a cake that's about the size of the duck breast. Not very thick. You, want, you basically want the whole thing to cook through by the time it browns. This is a half inch, which I think that's pretty good, good size. Oil up to temp, looking for 350, thereabouts. I'll take this opportunity to look at my lentils. Oh yeah. Oh, that's getting pretty close to being done. I'm going to drop a touch more stock in here. A lot of it's been absorbed. All right, give it a little bit more stock in the lentils. And we are there, basically. 347. By the time this hits the pan, it'll be 350. Then you fry these just like you fry anything else. Let them get brown on one side, flip them over, let them get brown on the other side. And by that time they will be done. While I'm waiting for those to get ready, prep for my last bit. If you regularly listen to the show, you've probably heard me say very enthusiastic things about these pickled mustard greens that I first learned about this year and made. I'm gonna use those. I mean, mustard greens would, would just be on their own a very classic accompaniment to this. This particular, this particular combination of stuff, duck breast, hot water cornbread, and mustard greens. In this case, I have a bunch of these pickled mustard greens that I made. So I'm gonna use those and I'm actually, I'm gonna bridge, I'm gonna do some culinary fusion here. I'm gonna bridge Sichuan and North Louisiana <laughs> and I'm gonna make stir fried pickled mustard greens to go along with my hot water cornbread and my duck breast. And I'm pretty excited about them. 
Um, so uh, while this is cooking, I'll just describe what I'm about to do because it's kind of the thing with stir fry that once you get going, you don't have time to do anything else. So I've got my pickled mustard greens. I pulled them out, a nice generous handful. Cut them up a little bit and they're ready to go. I have some garlic, two, three little small cloves of garlic. I have some Szechuan peppercorns and I have some Dubanjang. And I probably didn't say that right, but I'm sorry. One day I'll have like a whole fan club in China that's like specifically devoted to laughing at me attempting to pronounce Chinese uh, food names. Anyway, so Dubanjang is a, uh, it's a fermented paste of chili peppers and fava beans. It's a specialty of Sichuan. It's really, really good. It lasts forever in the refrigerator, so it's really good in like fried rice, in any kind of a stir fry. It, it gets specifically used in all sorts of di different uh, Sichuanese dishes. And even though it'll technically be more of a saute than a stir fry, I guess, because I'm doing it over a non super hot flame and not in a wok, <laughs> in just a flat bottom carbon steel skillet that I just cooked my duck breast in. So somebody can yell at me about it not being a stir fry, whatever. Sauteed pickled mustard greens with garlic. And it'll be a nice, a nice counterpoint to the sweetness of the corn cake of the hot water cornbread and the duck. They'll all just blend together in a really nice harmonious blend. And duck is like, the, the only, the, the people in the world that truly appreciate the duck more than anybody else are the Chinese. I believe they actually domesticated it and I'm pretty sure that domesticated duck came before chickens. I will confirm that. All right, flipped my hot water cornbread. It is a beautiful, very light golden brown. Really, really pretty stuff. Oh, and I do want to say, I have made this with the, the fancy stone, stone ground cornmeal and it's not really as good. Um, it's always a little grittier if you use it like that. You really want to use very finely ground cornmeal. I know everybody says use stone ground, whatever. In certain cases, sure. In regular, you know, risen cornbread, that's fine. For this stuff, you want the really fine grain, finely ground cornmeal. And whiter, whiter yellow actually is, that's kind of, there's kind of a fascinating cultural history. There's somewhere I saw a map of different regions in the South where they use white versus yellow cornmeal. Because in North Louisiana, where my, where my grandmother, my grandmother on my mom's side is from South Louisiana, my grandmother on my North, on my dad's side is from North Louisiana. And in North Louisiana, it's white cornmeal all the time. All her, all her straight up cornbread was, was white. Her hot water cornbread was white. That was the only kind of cornmeal that they had. In South Louisiana, it's a yellow corn pocket. And so my mom used yellow corn meal. My grandmother on her side used yellow corn meal. So the only time I ever saw white corn meal was when we went up there. And then I'd move, I moved away and I never really thought that much about it. And the, there's a lot of really weird stuff around Southern cooking. And one of the things is tons of people who are not from a yellow corn meal pocket, there's more places use white corn meal. So it's more widespread, but they get super offended. You know, they get real protective about, oh, it can't be Southern cooking if it doesn't, if it's, if it's yellow corn meal, even though there are a lot of places in the South where that's used, so. But anyway, use white, use yellow. It really doesn't matter. They both taste the same. There we go. Put these on a paper towel to drain a little bit. And now I can saute slash stir fry my pickled mustard green. Crank it up. And this is just the same pan that I just cooked those duck, that, that duck breast in. I'm gonna use a little bit of the oil that, that they rendered off in this. And this is gonna be really simple. Um, all I'm gonna do is start off with the, I wish I had some ginger, but I don't have any ginger. I'm gonna start by grabbing a little bit of the Dobinjang. This isn't a huge amount because this isn't a huge amount of uh, mustard greens. This is basically just enough for me, so I don't need a massive amount. The broad bean paste, as it's called, uh, because it's fermented, it's really salty too. So you probably, I'm not gonna, and the, the pickled mushroom, or the, the pickled mustard, mustard greens themselves are real salty. So I'm not gonna really need much if anything, in the way of salt. I'm gonna add a splash of Shaozing cooking wine right at the end, just to give it a little, a little bit of moisture. So now my pan is just beginning to smoke a little bit. So I'm gonna add a couple teaspoons of the, uh, the rendered fat from the breast. And that is the Dobinjang, the broad bean chili pepper paste. That gets cooked real briefly, stir fried real briefly just until it starts to turn kind of a vibrant red. And then I got my Sichuan peppercorns, a little sprinkle of them in there, and those get stir fried real briefly. And 
Some garlic, be generous with it. Stir fry that. Until the garlic sorts of starts to get aromatic. And then in go my mustard greens. And I'm gonna add just a little tiny splash of Shaozing wine. That was maybe a tablespoon. And that's ready to go on my plate. Eh, we don't talk about plating very much on this show. Well, for one thing, it's the radio. But in this case, I'm just spread my mustard greens all over my plate. And I'm putting my cake, my hot water cornbread, right in the middle of that. And piling the duck breast on top of that. And I happen to really enjoy a little Malden salt on top of my duck breast. The way that it crunches together with the, uh, with the crispiness of the duck skin is just awesome. I'm excited about this because I'm actually, this whole process was really just designed to make me some lunch because I'm hungry. So I'm gonna go eat this, but before I do, I just wanna say this is only one duck breast too. It would be very easy to make two out of this. So you can get two, so you get two meals of duck breast and this meal, I mean, come on. You know, like realistically, this is a 20, minimum a $20 plate. Well, it depends on where you are in Alaska. This is like a $40 plate. So, so the math for these ducks, one duck, I got a good solid cup of duck fat out of. I got the Riettes, which will go for a really nice spread on an appetizer plate. I got the uh, the lentil the lentil and duck stew that will make, I can get probably three to four good sizable lunches during the week out of that. I got two full complete dinners of um, duck breast, you know, that you can do anything with. It doesn't have to be this, obviously. I got the cracklins, which were a delicious snack, and I still have almost a quart of the duck stock left um, that I can use to make soups. I can use it to make rice taste good. I can use it for whatever, you know? And so for one $20 duck, if you just take a little bit of work, you can turn that into so, so, so much more. Cooking really, and running kitchens specifically, like if you're the person in charge of your kitchen, it's really, it's not just about the food that goes out on the plate. It's what you can do with the food you bring in. And you bring in as, as little as possible and turn that into as much as you can. And that's kind of the magic, really, of cooking. And that's what kitchen economy is all about. And it's so important, and we never, ever hardly talk about it. And duck is a good illustration of that because it's small, it's easy for one person to deal with, and you can do a lot with it. It's very versatile. I love it. I love duck. I'm hungry, though. So I'm gonna quit talking and start eating. Eat more duck. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted by Jeff Lockwood. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2, by Claude Debussy, performed by Quator Ebane. This is the sixth episode of the fall 2019 season of Check the Pantry. financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this.
Thank you. 